Once upon a time, uh, and it's hard for us to imagine, but not that long ago, there were no Democrats. <laughs> and there were no Republicans. And there were no independents, and uh, there was no constitution, and there was no Bill of Rights, and there was no First Amendment or Second Amendment. There were no any amendment rights. Uh, in fact, there was, and there was no CNN, and there was no Fox News. Imagine that. There was no New York Times and no New York Post. There were no social media warriors because there was no social media. And after I go through that list, I think, what a peaceful time. <laughs> like, that'd be so awesome. But... In some ways, it wasn't really, because once there was just Rome, a republic that had transitioned into an empire under the brutal leadership of Caesar Augustus, a very fam- uh, the very first Roman emperor. And as he ruled, as he ruled, there was a baby born in Jerusalem, in 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 the city uh, or in uh, Bethlehem, and uh, the fame and the renown of this Jewish baby ended up eclipsing the fame and the renown of this first Roman emperor. And in fact, uh, in fact, the fame of this Jewish baby would eventually eclipse every single Roman emperor of the Roman Empire. And uh, he would stand against the injustice of the empire and he would stand against the duplicity and the hypocrisy of the temple. And he would teach, uh, teach that we are to love our neighbor, we're to love our enemy, and we are to forgive everyone. But eventually he was betrayed by a friend, he was condemned by the temple, and he was crucified by an empire, and today he is worshipped throughout the world. And once upon a time, not long after the resurrection, uh, uh, because Jesus rose the first day of the week on Sunday, uh, Christians would gather early in the morning and they would share a hymn to Christ, they would share a story, maybe they would share a piece or a fragment from one of the letters that was written by one of the leaders in the Jesus movement, one of the followers, and they would renew their vows every week to certain things. They would renew their vow to chastity and to fidelity. They would renew their oath to be men and women above reproach and to be honest and to work hard. And in these little gatherings and in homes and under trees and in courtyards, you would find both masters and slaves and men and women and farmers and children and merchants and Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and Romans and soldiers. And in these little gatherings of people, they, they believe the unbelievable. They believed that God was spirit. He was not stone. He was not wood. And, 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 and these, these Christians, uh, these Jesus followers, they were in a class all of their own. Because unlike every other nation and people and religious group known to mankind, uh, they believed that every single person had, was born with, was created with intrinsic value, not assigned value. And they believed the days of animal sacrifice had passed, and so this put them at odds with almost everybody in their culture, and they too were betrayed by their friends, condemned by the temple, and persecuted by an empire. And yet their influence spread like airborne disease. And now it's our time. Now it's our turn. It's why we're doing this series at the three-year anniversary mark of this community, of this church, uh, on the front end of a new decade, because Because someday, one day, our generation, our brand of Christianity will have a once upon a time story. And I wonder what story will be told. Because we don't go to church, we are the church. We're a movement. We don't just exist for ourselves, we exist for others. We are stewards of the faith of our generation and what we are passing to the next generation. And I wonder what the story will be when the story is told about this generation 
specifically of American Christians. So as we wrap up this series, Tough as Nails, I want to take you to a narrative in the book of Acts, which is extremely challenging. And the reason it's so challenging is because it reminds us that once upon a time, there was a version of Christianity that was awe-inspiring. There was once a version of Christianity where people would say, who are those people? There was once a version of Christianity that was so intriguing that even though people thought it was, some of it was strange and like unconditional love, like, like, like who does that? Forgive, forgive your enemy? It's almost offensive. Who does that? Even though uh, these people found some of the customs offensive, like what's this communion and eating you know, body and drinking blood and, and you know, what is that? And it's something we're going to actually share in a few minutes. Uh, the idea that God could actually love humans and love all Humans, and, and, but in spite of that, people leaned in instead of leaning away. There was once a version that caused, of Christianity that caused people to pay attention. Now, this specific piece of narrative, it it's actually happens just two months after Jesus is crucified. So if you have your Bible, you want to follow along. It's in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And if, if, you're, if you're new to Christianity or new to Bible study, uh, the book of Acts is uh, simply an ancient manuscript that records the acts of those that followed Jesus after Jesus was crucified and then left this earth. It was written uh, by a doctor named Luke. He thoroughly invested everything. He investigated uh, everything. He inter- interviewed everyone he could interview. Uh, Luke was an eyewitness to many of the things that he wrote about in this narrative. Uh, Luke tells us that immediately following the resurrection, uh, Christianity began to spread throughout Jerusalem and in the entire region. There had been Jesus sightings all over the place for six weeks following the crucifixion. And in Acts chapter 4, here's how he sets it up. Uh, Peter and John, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, decide to go to the temple to pray. Now, this is a rendering of what the temple would have looked like, the second temple would have looked like in the first century. This was about a 38-acre complex uh, that had different buildings, and this, this, this entire building, every, everything's gone. Every single stone was dragged away by the Romans and thrown over the edge. Uh, but this is about what it would have, it would have looked something like this. So the disciples, Peter and John, are going up uh, some of the stairs to go into the temple to pray. And they're going up, and there's a man, as they walk by, that has been lame from birth. He's over 40 years old, which meant most of the people that lived in that part of Jerusalem would have seen this individual at one point or another. And so they're going to the temple, and he's begging. He asks for a donation. They just uh, can't give him any gold or silver because they don't have any money, so they just decide to heal him. And so the guy ends up standing up, and he begins running around. He begins jumping around. Of course, he follows these guys into the temple because it's like he just won the Powerball 100 times over. So, of course, he follows them in. He's leaping. He's jumping around. He's shouting. He's celebrating. Of course he is. And people see him. And, uh, you know, all of us have experienced this. When you see somebody out of context, it's like, I feel like I know you. I, hate, I have this all the time because I have the attention span of a gnat. But, but it's like... I. I that's the guy. That's, that's the guy that was always begging. That's him. And so this crowd begins to gather. And so Peter takes this opportunity to preach. And, but the problem is he's preaching about Jesus inside the temple complex. And this cl- crowd begins to gather and it's gathering. He's getting louder and louder. So the temple authorities, they start pushing their way through the crowd to get through, to see what's going on. And lo and behold, here are these Jesus followers. 
And for about six weeks after the crucifixion, there have been Jesus sightings all over the area. And now here are these two guys in the temple complex. These are two guys that immediately followed, uh, following the crucifixion had gone into hiding. But now they're not just back. Now they're in the temple complex and they're causing a disturbance. They're drawing a crowd and they're talking about Jesus, the one the authorities had crucified. So they arrest them. It's late in the afternoon, so they put them in jail. Now, now keep in mind, Peter and John are arrested by the very same people, the very same group that arrested Jesus just two months before. Just two months before, Peter and John saw Jesus arrested and beaten and tortured and crucified. And now they're probably in the very same jail that Jesus was. They're arrested by the same people, and they know very likely they will not see the light of day, or if they do, that they will do to them what they did to Jesus. But the next day, they bring them out. Uh, the Jewish ruling council, uh, they, they gather all the big guns. You have Annas, who's the high priest. You have Caiaphas, uh, his son-in-law. Uh, and then uh, you, the high priest for a long time, you have a son-in-law, Caiaphas, and Annas's son, uh, because they basically just took turns being high priest. It was a family power control thing. And all the leaders and all the people that had been there for Jesus's trial, they bring them all back together because here are these two Jesus followers and they're still talking about Jesus. They won't shut up. And they say to them, what, what are you doing? What is going on? Why can't you just let this go? We move on. And they're in front of the very people who had led to Jesus's torture and his crucifixion. Uh, what would you say? What if you'd seen the handiwork on the body of Jesus from the hands of the Roman whipmasters after they flogged him and then crucified him? What, what would you say? You're standing in front of the very same people. Peter doesn't cower. He doesn't renege. Instead, he, he talks boldly about Jesus and he looks these men in the eyes and I tend to think he pointed and said, you crucified him. God raised him. And then to this ruling council who will decide their fate, knowing full well what happened to Jesus just weeks before, he ends his speech uh, in this sermon with an extraordinarily offensive statement. He says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Salvation is in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. How offensive, how narrow, how unfair. In fact, if you're someone that you're not sure if you are a Christian or how many people resist Christianity, this is one of the reasons why. It's because the argument is, how can you be so narrow-minded? How can you be so closed-minded? How can you be so sure, so, so arrogant to say that there's only one way? How can you say that Jesus is the only way? Surely all religious paths lead to God if there is one. All religious paths would lead to heaven if there is one. How, how arrogant, how narrow-minded. That's just so offensive. But here's the deal. We didn't make it up. Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers for three-some years, uh, and he's in a room with the people who decided the fate of Jesus and are going to decide his. And he looks them right in the eyes and says, says you, you crucified him. God raised him. And there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And as narrow and as fair as this seems, 
The, the, the problem is, is that they had seen their friend and their teacher and their rabbi, Jesus, arrested, tortured, beaten, crucified, dead, and buried, and then just a few days later have fish and chips on the beach with him. And, and so, yes, yes, it's, it's offensive. Yes, it's narrow. But when you've had breakfast with a man who was dead a few days ago, but now you're eating with him and he tells you he's come to be the savior of the world, that he's the son of man, that he is the son of God, you believe anything a person who has come back from three days dead says. And these two men, the same two men who had fled into hiding after the crucifixion, Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus, now they're gathered in front of the same group that had crucified Jesus. He looks them in the eye and says, you're guilty for murdering and crucifying the Son of God, but fear not, God has raised him from the dead. And regardless of what you say or decide you'll do with us, Caiaphas and Annas and all of you uh, who have gathered here, you need to know there's no other name under heaven by which a person must and can be saved. Luke tells us these leaders were like, guys, you saw, you saw what we did to your master. You know the influence we have in Rome. In fact, all we need to do is march the two of you back down to Pilate and say, hey, just a couple, couple more executions and we can be done with this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing that they could say because they brought this guy to the show. Uh, he's there and everybody's like, yeah, that's, that's the guy. Like ever since I was a kid, ever since I was a, a teen, he was the one that was begging. He's, he's the one. So they send Peter and John and this guy out of the room and they confer with one another. What, what are we going to do with these men? They ask. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign and nobody, and we can't deny it. So they bring them back in, and under public pressure, they decide to let them go, but they threaten them, say, knock it off, don't be talking about Jesus anymore, and so they let them go, and they're like, man, that was a close one. We almost lost our lives, and we're told that Peter and John rented themselves a couple of mules and got out of town and disappeared into the wilderness forever. No, that's, that's not what they did, but why? Why wouldn't you? What rational person wouldn't? Because when you've had breakfast with someone who rose from the dead, you lose all fear. You lose all concern about this life. You fears about who's in power, whether it's government or whether it's religion. And then they went back and they gathered with the Christians who were praying and they were waiting and they were wondering, are we going to have to experience two more crucifixions? They gather and report back everything that happened and what was said. And then this is the first time that we know of recorded anyways where Christians and Jesus followers that they gather together to pray and have a prayer meeting. But before I read their prayer, here's the question for you to consider. Like really, what would you pray? How would you pray? You've just gotten out of jail. You've been questioned and threatened by the same group that arrested and tortured and took your master's life. You're in the city, surrounded by the people in which these events happen. You barely got out of life, but you did. You've been given another chance at life. You've been given freedom to decide what you want to do with the rest of your life. From this moment on, you're gathered with a lot of other Christians, a lot of other Jesus followers, and you know you're being followed. You know you're being watched. You know the government's against you. You know the religious authorities are against you. You know the majority of the people living around you in this tight-knit city are against you. 
How would you pray? How would I pray? How, would, how, how do Americans pray? The men and the women, they're gathered there with Peter and John, and I don't want us to miss this. If, if you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, these are our people. The reason that you are sitting here this morning or listening to this online is because of somebody in this room. So these are like our spiritual grandparents. These are our people and our ancestors. And Luke tells us that after their release, Peter and John went back to their own people, our people, and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God, Sovereign Lord, which is basically, dear, dear God, you are large and in charge of everything. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. I mean, isn't that how you start your prayer? It's like, no, we go, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And we should thank him. We should thank him. But, but how small does that feel? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You are large and in charge God. You are sovereign God. And they're quoting from the second Psalm, Psalm 2. Lord, now consider their threats and enable your servants to run fast. Enable your servants to not get harmed. Enable your servants to be in a bubble of safety. Put a helmet on it. No. Enable us to speak your word with boldness. Like, no, you guys need to get out of town. You need to leave. No, 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 God, make us more bold. Make us more bold. We, we know what they did to Jesus and what they will likely do the same to us, but we don't care. We want to be a part of what you're doing. Make us bold in the face of their threats and stretch out your hand, not to keep us safe, not, to, uh, not on our behalf or for our benefit, but to heal and to perform signs and wonders to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And Luke says that after, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was somehow shaken, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness, with confidence, fearlessly, in spite of persecution and very real threats. Now, I want to pause for a second because when the scriptures tell us that the first century Christians were bold in their faith and spoke boldly, it was not this. Okay, this is not boldness. This is stupid. This isn't, this isn't bold. This, this or any version of it doesn't even reflect Christianity. This, this is just a, a group of people that know one verse from a book of John and a few scattered verses in Revelation, and they take it and they make it into something. And granted, this is an extreme example, but the reality is that there's a many, many muted versions of the very same thing within the Christian world. But for the first century Christians, when they went out to speak the word of God boldly, they did so in such a way that wasn't obnoxious. They did it in such a way that it drew people to Jesus. They did it in such a way that it drew hundreds and then it drew thousands. And this is important for us in 21st century America with 21st century American Christianity. Their boldness had nothing to do with arguing doctrine and theology. Now, do doctrine and theology matter? Of course they do. 
But their boldness was about a single event that's at the epicenter of everything that we believe as Christians. And Luke tells us, with great power, the apostles continued, continued to testify to the parables of Jesus? No. To the teachings of Jesus? No. To the activities of Jesus? No. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. See, it's just so important for us to, to, to get a grip on that their confidence was not linked to some sudden change in their life circumstances. Suddenly, everything just got better around them. It wasn't somehow linked that suddenly they gained greater power politically or with those in government or in the religious world. It wasn't linked to any of that. Their confidence wasn't about who was or who was not in seats of political power. Their confidence was rooted and founded in the resurrection of Jesus because they believed Jesus rose from the dead and they were fearless. And that fearlessness then translated into to, to selflessness because when you no longer fear loss, you become selfless. You become more compassionate. You become more generous. And it was not the, the gaining or the losing of political influence. And again, if you've missed any of this series, I just want to encourage you, please, to get online to listen to the series. We, we've talked some, especially about this political climate and this election year. Uh, their influence wasn't obtained through any power-up. Their influence was obtained through generosity and compassion and the selflessness of first century Christians or the uh, fearless and selflessness of first century Christians that caused pagan, fearful, selfish, cultured individuals to lean in. And do you know why we can fear not? Do you know why can, we can live with boldness as Christians? Do you know why we can be confident in our faith about what we believe? It's not because our preferred candidate gets elected. It's not because terrorism is eliminated. It's not whether minimum wage is increased or decreased. Uh, the, it, it, and it's not about just or unjust political policy. The reason for the foundation of our confidence, the reason we can live without fear in spite of what's happening around us is because God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you're a Christian, you, you believe Jesus rose from the dead because Matthew witnessed it and then wrote about it. Matthew was an eyewitness and wrote about it and believed it. Luke thoroughly investigated all the things and then was witness to many things. Peter was an eyewitness and wrote about it. John was an eyewitness and wrote about it. James, the brother of Jesus, who did not follow Jesus during his earthly ministry, came to the, at the end of the game. After the resurrection, he becomes a leader. He becomes a leader in the local church. And James believed that his brother died and rose again and that he called his brother his Lord. And these individuals who had been in hiding following the crucifixion just a few weeks later, all of them are willing to die for what they saw. They were witnesses, and, the, and they are the ones who set the tone for us, for you and for me. Why? Because they believe Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, we can face tomorrow, we can face next week, we can face this election cycle, and the one after that, and the one after that. Because he lives. We no longer need to live in fear. Because, because he lives, we can be confident. We can be bold and we can be compassionate. We can be selfless and concerned about the needs of other people and then act 
on that concern. We don't need to rely on or wait on, uh, wait on a local or national government or for policies to change. We don't need to wait on any of that, uh, on any of that to change that we think is helpful or unhelpful or ineffective or even harmful because the government is not the hope of the world. The church is. The church is the hope of the world. If we have fixed our eyes on the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, we are the hope of the world if and when we live and we love that way. So if, if we will, it will cause people to lean in and not away. So it brings me back to the original question, what will our once upon a time story be? When someone tells a story one day about this generation of American Christians or even just for those of us that are part of this community in Wichita would say that we're Christians. What will the story sound like? Will it be that they trembled in fear just like the nation trembled because of things that were happening in a divided America or around the world? Will it be that we're just like everyone else looking to politicians and government for doom or salvation, whether an orange man would be impeached or reelected? They were up in arms about whether a socialist or absent-minded you know, professor type would get elected or... Or will it be that as the rhetoric and the finger pointing and the accusations got nastier and nastier, as the rhetoric got more dangerous, as people took sides and compassion waned and the political partisanship and racial divide in the country increased and got deeper and deeper and got worse and worse and people began to not trust the Christians, they were different. They seemed to, to rise above it not in ignorance, not in hiding their heads in the sand, not in ignoring compassion and justice in their day. In fact, they, instead of not just ignoring it or, or just waiting for government to get their act together or obsessing over who would or would not be in the White House four more years, the Christians, they led their way. It's like they seemingly had no fear. They were those among us who seemingly had no fear. They were informed, but they weren't worried. Instead of raging like everyone else, they were irrationally generous and they were compassionate. And they didn't excuse imperfect or broken policies. But instead of waiting for policy to change or another election cycle, they got involved. They got engaged. Instead of just complaining, they were active and being part of the solution for the injustices and the brokenness in our community, in our world. And, and, and they were passionate, but they weren't divisive. And the worse things got, the better they got. And they had personal conviction. They were men and women of principle, but they were not judgmental of others that landed on different political sides and stances. And the Christians, the worse things got, the better they got. And some of them were, some of them were Democrats. Is that possible? Some of them were Republicans. Is that possible? And some of them, like, I don't even know where they stood politically, but beyond all that, they, they were Christians who daily sought to reflect the one that they claimed they followed, Jesus, in our broken world, in our broken system, and we were better off. We, we were glad the Christians were around and among us. What will our once upon a time story be? Because as I said in the beginning, we, we don't go to the church, we are the church, and we are stewards 
of the faith of our generation, and we are setting the tone for those that are coming behind us, especially in an increasingly divided country. What will our once upon a time story be? As we've looked in this series, the author of Hebrews, he would say, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, men and women from the past who lived under political and religious regimes that we can't even fathom, men and women from the past that, that paved the way, many of whom paid with their blood so that we could be here today and pursue and acknowledge God in freedom and to have these texts and words that we can understand, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's throw off our fear. Let's throw off compassionless living. Let's throw off everything that gets in the way. For some of us, let's get off of social media. For some of us, let's, we need to remove the distractions of the evening news that just fuels anger and fear and angst. We need to confront everything that would try to make us back down and let us run with perseverance the race, the specific race that God has laid out for us as American Christians. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us in fixing our eyes, not on the economy, not on Washington, not on a political candidate, not on social media, not on mainstream media or on culture, but fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured such opposition from sinners, that you will not grow weary, so that you will not lose heart, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart and be overcome. Is it worth it or is it working? Because Jesus, our Savior, was tougher than nails. He faced it all. He overcame it all. says, I've become the Savior of the world, and now I'm inviting you to come and follow me. So now fear not and follow me. 